From rags to riches. Have you heard a rags to riches story? Is there someone you think of? Someone who's risen from poverty to wealth? From obscurity to fame? Or from failure to success? There's Walt Disney. He was fired from his first animation job, or one of his first animation jobs. He was told that he lacked imagination, that he lacked the creative spark, that he had no good ideas. Well, he certainly made up for that, didn't he? 26 Academy Awards he won. That's more than anyone else. There's J.K. Rowling. In her words, she was as poor as anyone could possibly be without being homeless. But now, she's Britain's wealthiest woman, richer than the Queen, apparently, thanks to the Harry Potter books that have made her famous. Rags to riches stories, they inspire us, they motivate us. All of us want to achieve something great in life. All of us want to get to the end of life wanting to have achieved something. But it's not just about wealth, is it? It's about status. It's about reputation, power. See, we're all carving out our stories in the world, aren't we? And none of us want our stories to finish where they began. Walt Disney didn't. J.K. Rowling doesn't. We want to progress in life. We have hopes. We have dreams. What are your hopes? What are your dreams? Where are you now and where do you want to go? Progress in life is what we want. And it's a good thing, isn't it? Not to stay where you are, but to move. The Christian life is all about progress, isn't it? It's all about becoming more and more like Jesus. But what is it that determines progress for us? What is it that gives shape to our hopes and our dreams? Well, I think all of us, if we're honest, would say that too often it's the world and its values that shape us. But in our passage today, Jesus gives us a reality check. He turns our world upside down. The kingdom of heaven, you see, is very different to the kingdom of this world. He shows us what true greatness is, what true riches are. And if we pick up in verse 13, he's on his way, Jesus is, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And it's there that he'll be crucified. And on this journey, he's been using real-life situations to teach stuff about the kingdom. And here we have this situation where parents, presumably, bring their kids to Jesus looking for a blessing. But the disciples want them to nick off. They've got no time for them at all. And their reaction might seem a bit over the top to us, I'd imagine. You know, kids are cute. But little children in Israel were towards the bottom of the social pecking order. And so it's socially unacceptable for these kids to come and demand Jesus' time. See, they brought nothing to the table of value in in that world. They brought no wisdom, no wealth, no initiative. But how short are the disciples' memories? Jesus' words in chapter 18 should still be ringing in their ears. Whoever welcomes a child in my name 
welcomes me. That's chapter 18, verse 5. See, the disciples, they want them taken away. But Jesus welcomes them. He says in verse 14, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. Why? For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. See, Jesus turns the world and its values upside down. See, in his kingdom, it's not the great that are valued. It's not those with status, it's the least. Those with no status, at the bottom of the pile, if you like. But Jesus' point isn't simply that the kingdom belongs to children. Of course that's true. Children can be part of God's kingdom, like all of us. But Jesus' point here is that the kingdom belongs to those like children. There's a picture of my daughter Zoe when she was 18 months old. It's pretty cute. And in in our society, Zoe represents cuteness, doesn't she? Innocence, purity, all those things. But the ancient world viewed children differently. In ancient society, Zoe represents dependence, weakness, vulnerability. And in all their weakness and vulnerability, the Zoes of the world are model examples of the kind of humility and faith that Jesus finds acceptable. This is what following Jesus looks like. Jesus isn't calling us here to be innocent like children. He's calling us to come to him in total dependence, in all our weakness, with nothing to receive everything. It's a hard attitude to adopt. See, we don't normally think like this. In our world, we value independence, don't we? Not dependence. Autonomy, not submission. Strength and power, not weakness. It's encapsulated in messages, wherever I go, whatever I watch on TV, what's the message? You can achieve whatever you set your mind to. That's what I see, that's what I hear. If you want it enough, if you work hard enough, if you just have a real red-hot crack at it, you will achieve what you want in life. You can be great if only you do this. Well, while there's something positive in all this, I don't want to paint the picture that independence is always a bad thing. There's a dark side to it, isn't there? And the dark side is when when it breeds pride, when it breeds arrogance. Because in our pride and in our arrogance, as we saw when we were looking through uh, some of the minor prophets a couple of weeks ago, or a few weeks ago now perhaps, what we saw is that pride and arrogance gives you the complete wrong idea about where you stand before God gives you the complete wrong idea of who you truly are before God. God is the creator and we're his creatures. The breath of life itself is given to us by God. We're completely dependent on him. 
And so to think that we can come to Jesus with a spirit of independence, with a spirit of autonomy, with a spirit of power is just wrong. That's not how you enter the kingdom. The attitude of a humble child is what's necessary for Jesus' followers. Well, after blessing the children, Jesus and his disciples, they head off. And then in verse 16, someone else approaches Jesus. And with the episode of the children in the background, the big question is, does this man measure up? Does he have the same humble attitude of a child needed to enter the kingdom? That's the question. Jesus has given the model, how's he going to measure up? Or did you notice that the disciples who wanted to get rid of the children, they don't say anything to him. There's no barring him from seeing Jesus. He's a man at the totally different end of the pecking order, the social pecking order to the children. He's at the top. He ticks all the boxes. He's young. He's moral. He's wealthy. And the icing on the cake, he's spiritually sincere. Verse 17 and 20. But none of these things will bring him eternal life. Only childlike humility and dependence will do. And he's got a problem. And the problem he has is that he thinks that he can gain for himself eternal life. What good must I do, he says. He comes to Jesus with a spirit of independence. And he ticks off the commandments that Jesus lists. Do not murder. Tick. Do not commit adultery. Tick. Do not steal. Tick. Do not bear false witness. Tick. Honour your father and mother and love your neighbour as yourself. Tick. But to his credit, he knows that there's something missing. So he asks, what do I still lack? And Jesus' response turns this man's world upside down. But what he does in giving him this response is an opportunity to demonstrate the childlike attitude that is needed to enter the kingdom, the kind of humility and dependence that Jesus was speaking about. Look at verse 21. Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. It's important to realise here, we might want to water down this, uh, this statement here, but this isn't a token request in Matthew. This is real. See, Jesus is calling this man to follow him on the way to Jerusalem. And what it means for him is leaving everything that he has built his life on, that makes him, that gives him status, that gives him power. It means leaving everything that's given him this good life so far to follow a man to his death. It means becoming weak becoming vulnerable and dependent. Nothing less than this childlike attitude is required to gain the true riches of the kingdom. But the tragedy is, and I'm sure you noticed, the tragedy is that he loved the status and he loved 
the power that his wealth provided him. And he loved those things more than he loved God. It's a tragic verse, verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, grieving, distressed, because he had great wealth. That bit there, he went away sad or grieving or distressed. It gets to me. You know what gets to me? It's because he knows that Jesus has nailed his issue. He knows what's at stake, eternal life in the kingdom. But his wealth captivates his heart. And he can't exchange this God for Jesus. So he goes away distressed, knowing deep in his heart that his decision has consequences. See, the thing is, you can know what Jesus claims, you can know what's at stake, and you can even believe that it's true, but still reject him, but still reject the life that he offers. The danger of wealth is real. There's a reason why Jesus bangs on about it so much in the Bible. It's a wonderful servant, isn't it? But it's a terrible master. And when is wealth our master? It's when, it shape, when, it, it's when it's the main thing or one of the main things that gives shape to our lives. It's when it determines our values. It's when it determines our priorities. It's when it determines our ambitions. Think about the dream of owning your own home. It's something that can consume us. Why do we go to work each day? To earn money to go towards the house. And then when we've, we've bought the place, because we've invested so much into it, we feel like it's got to meet our every desire. And so we might paint the place. We might do up the kitchen. We might do a bit of a backyard blitz, that sort of stuff. But it all takes time, doesn't it? And it's tiring. We've already given up our midweek Bible study group so that we can keep this up, but then we start missing church one Sunday a month as well. And then it's every fortnight. Before you know it, you're out of the habit. This is one example of how wealth and what it might bring us can consume us and have an effect. And I've seen... This, why pick this scenario? I've seen it happen again and again, but it might not be this. It might be, might be other things. It's not just wealth that can end up being our master. It could just be chasing opportunities either for yourself or for your kids. It could, it, there can be all kinds of things that determine our values and our priorities and our ambitions in life. All kinds of things that prevent us from coming to Jesus like little children, and growing in Him. So let me ask you, what has the potential, or what is, perhaps, replacing Jesus as number one in your life? We might gain everything we've ever dreamed of, yet fail to gain what's truly valuable in God's eyes. How does the rich young man measure up? Well, if little children are the model for entering the kingdom, the rich young man is the model for failing to enter the kingdom, isn't he? Well, it's fair to say 
when we turn to Jesus' disciples now in verse 23, it's fair to say if we ask the question how they've measured up so far, that they haven't measured up well at all to this model of discipleship that Jesus has put forward. Remember, they tried to turn the children away and then they practically roll out the red carpet for this rich young man. In their eyes, the wrong guy's been turned away. Wasn't the man's wealth a sign of God's blessing, they're thinking? Well, not according to Jesus. Jesus turned the rich man's world upside down. Now he turns the disciples' world upside down. And the way he does that is by saying that it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom. And to drive home the point, he uses that ridiculous image, doesn't he? That ridiculous image of a camel going through the eye of a needle. Spare a thought for the disciples, it's too much for them. They're gobsmacked. Who on earth can be saved then if the rich can't? Well, Jesus doesn't leave them in the dark. He assures them what's human, that what's humanly impossible isn't too hard for God. But they've got another question. And Peter, the spokesperson for the disciples, he's always the one that pipes up. Verse 27, he says, Look, we've left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? You see, they've done what the rich man failed to do. They've given up everything to follow Jesus. But you get the impression that they wonder whether it's all been worth it. Haven't you wondered the same thing if you're a Christian? I know I have. You can feel their impatience, can't you? Where are the blessings of this kingdom that you've been proclaiming, Jesus? that the disciples still haven't learnt to be little children. They're still looking at things from the perspective of the rich and the powerful. They're yet to discover the true riches of the kingdom. But if the disciples don't measure up, what hope do we have of measuring up? What hope do any of us have? Well, Jesus assures his disciples and he assures us of a glorious future. A glorious future where we will measure up. He says, don't focus on what you've given up to follow me. Those things are a dead end. Focus focus on what you've given up those things for. In verse 28, he says, in the messianic age, the future glorious age, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Then verse 29, And everyone who has left houses, brothers or sisters, father or mother, children or fields, because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. See, there's a glorious future ahead for disciples of Jesus. And Jesus himself is the key to entering it. He makes the impossible possible. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and there's a cross and a resurrection to come where the camel will go through the eye of the needle. The rich young man doesn't measure up, the disciples don't measure up, we don't measure up, but Jesus does. He's the one, the only one, 
who measures up. When his love for God was tested, when the devil tested him with power and status, he doesn't trade it in. He walks the path of humble dependence, doesn't he? All the way to the cross, he becomes weak and helpless, dying a shameful death at the hands of his enemies. See, this model for entering the kingdom that Jesus puts forward, this humble and dependent attitude, well, Jesus himself exemplifies it perfectly, doesn't he? The attitude of a humble child. And he invites us to follow him on the way to glory, humbly depending on him, responding to the warning of verse 30, which says, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. I began by talking about our stories and not wanting to finish where we began. So thinking about our lives as Christians. How do we start as a follower of Jesus and how do we progress as a follower of Jesus? This is where the rubber hits the road for us. How do you start? as a follower of Jesus? Or you start humbly depending on God, coming to Jesus with nothing to receive everything. Dependence. How do you progress as a follower of Jesus? Well, you don't move on from that, do you? You continue in humble dependence. But you don't just continue in it, you grow more and more into it. The Christian becomes more and more dependent on Christ. The Christian realises more and more that they receive everything from Jesus, despite bringing nothing to the table themselves. And so my prayer today is that we will grow more and more in our dependence upon Christ, that we'll grow more and more as humble, obedient children and that we'll realise that that is how we gain the true riches of God's kingdom.